You're listening to Bead, History for the Church, a conversation with Drs. Michael A.G. Haken and Mike Pullman. Dr. Haken serves as the Chair and Professor of Church History at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, and he is on the core faculty of Heritage Theological Seminary in Cambridge, Ontario. Dr. Pullman is Associate Professor of Practical Theology and the Chair of the Department of the Ministry and Proclamation at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. He's the author of Broadcasting the Faith, Radio and Theology in America, 1920 to 1950. Join us now as we seek to see what God has done in the history of his people. The Savior calls, let every ear attend the heavenly sound. Ye doubting souls, dismiss your fear, hope smiles reviving round. For every thirsty, longing heart, here streams a bounty flow and life and health and bliss impart to banish mortal woe. Here springs of sacred pleasure rise to ease your every pain. Immortal fountain full supplies, nor shall you thirst in vain. Ye sinners come, tis mercy's voice, the gracious call obey. Mercy invites to heavenly joys, and can you yet delay? Dear Savior, draw reluctant hearts, to thee let sinners fly and take the bliss thy love imparts, and drink and never die. Well, this 18th century hymn was inspired by John 7:37, where Jesus cries out to the crowd, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. The free offer of the gospel, you heard it in those words I just read from the, the hymn, you heard it in phrases like, Let every ear attend, or for every thirsty, longing heart, or sinners come. Yes, the free offer of the gospel. Now, given this, surely this hymn was written by John Wesley, right? I mean, this is an 18th century hymn, and surely it was John Wesley, the one who called the whole world his parish. Uh, This free offer of the gospel in song must have been written by him, but if you thought it was John Wesley, you'd actually be wrong. It was written, actually, by an English particular or Calvinistic Baptist by the name of Anne Steele. A hymn writer, at least one person, has referred to as, quote, the Baptist equivalent of Isaac Watts. That's quite a compliment to Anne Steele. Well, today we want to talk about Anne Steele and her hymns, but also about the history of hymns generally. And to help us do this, we have a very special guest, whose expertise is greatly needed. And I have I don't have to go far. What's so nice is I can just look at my colleagues here at Southern Seminary. And, and today we have Dr. Esther Cruikshank, and she is a professor of church music at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary and been doing this uh, at Southern since 1994. And she teaches in the areas of hymnology, musicology, applied ethnomusicology, and musical aesthetics. So you can tell we have just the expert we need. Esther, uh, so glad to have you with us tonight. Thank you for joining the program. And I forgot to mention, Esther, and I should uh, tell our audience this, in addition to publications in various journals over the years, you're currently writing a book, actually a textbook, is that right, on psalms, hymns, and songs in Christian worship. Maybe you could tell us a little bit about that. Oh, certainly. Well, um, there have been excellent textbooks written, um, but the 
body of Christian song just keeps growing, doesn't it? Uh, yes. Not just because of the contemporary worship music and the modern hymn, if you will, um, as we know it in the hymns of the Gettys and Matt Boswell and so many others, but um, global hymnody is exploding. So there is a need for an updated textbook and we do what we can to uh, put together textbooks for the privilege uh, that we have of teaching our students. And well, so... Um, and Esther, you mentioned uh, this global kind of bursting of music. Mm -hmm. And what I love about what you do is I can just tell, I mean, maybe our, our audience could hear, what it, what is ethnomusicology? In other words, you're looking at the whole global scene of music. Yes. So ethnomusicology is the study of music in culture, usually in living cultures, as opposed to historic musicology. Um, and that field, you know, has been thriving since the 1960s, kind of at the intersection of, of anthropology and, and music, musicology. But um, the newer field of ethnodoxology, really articulated since the 90s, um, is focused on, well, you can hear the word ethne and, and doxa, so let the peoples praise, uh, but it does focus on facilitating indigenous worship song. Um, both uh, in uh, international contexts as well as in multicultural worship right here in North America or wherever you may happen to be. So that's in short. Well, Esther, it's so, I'm so glad you're, you're my colleague. I'm just so glad you're here at Southern Seminary with, with your expertise and your background. I just love mm -hmm. knowing in our music department, in the Billy Graham School, uh, you are there. Uh, holding down the fort and and contributing to uh, the global singing of praises unto God. So, so glad to to have you on this program for this reason. Mm -hmm. Now, I wanted to go back before we even get to Anne Steele, who of course mm -hmm. we want to talk about this 18th century giant, if you will, of of musicology or of, of hymnology, really, uh, the mm -hmm. writing of hymns. Uh, let's go back. I, I wanted to pick your brain on uh, when do we start? If we we're looking at the history of of hymns, I mean, my mind, do we start with Exodus 15? Do we go to Moses? I mean, do we go to Exodus, um, well, like I said, or Deuteronomy 32? We could even go to Hannah's song in 1 Samuel 2 or the Psalms, of course. Yes. But then we even have these New Testament songs of Mary mm -hmm. and Zacharias. Mm -hmm. uh, and of course, Paul's great hymn in Psalm, or excuse me, Philippians 2. But mm -hmm. is that accurate to say that the, the Bible itself is full of hymns? Exactly. Um, you've nailed the Old Testament, what, uh, you know, liturgically have been called the Old Testament canticles, just mm -hmm. basically a uh, poem uh, to be sung that it, in the scripture that is outside the Psalms. And um, actually, it sounds like you were reading my syllabus because that's where we do start <laughs> is the first and second songs of Moses uh, from Exodus and Deuteronomy, respectively. And then into um, the other Old Testament, the Song of Hannah being very important um, as a precursor to Mary's song and on into the New Testament Christ hymns. But um, I'd love to talk to you about those some more anytime you <laughs> that well, we have that on the table. I do, can I audit your class? I mean, oh. I, 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 <laughs> I want to come to your class. Oh, I'm just glad I can talk to you about it tonight. Really, I would. Mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. I think sometimes there's this misunderstanding that that the psalms are the only songs 
in the Bible. So I'm so glad to know you're pointing out, no, there's, there's more than the Psalms. Right. I so agree with you. I think that perhaps evangelicals have sort of, um, uh, the canticles have been eclipsed and even the Psalms have kind of been on the back burner, um, all in favor of hymns and worship songs. Now we're uh, rediscovering the Psalms, I believe in, in evangelical worship, which is a wonderful thing. Well, and it is. And Esther, I wanted to ask you, you know, we often think uh, as evangelicals or even as, as um, you know, Protestants that the church started with Calvin and Luther. And of course, it goes back much further than that. When do we see the church uh, in the first sec- or the second century even singing the Psalms? I, I guess it would have been a little later, but when do we start to, to first see uh, singing the Psalter? Well, there's a direct carryover from synagogue worship, of course, and the Jewish cantillation of the Psalms um, on a regular schedule. And ultimately that feeds into the monastic, the schedule of monasteries as uh, those who felt their whole calling uh, was to pray for the world and to do so by by singing this entire Psalter through uh, once every week. Um, Mm. But um, just to carry that forward. Um, uh, Isaac Watts in the 17th century among among um, Protestants is the, in a sense, tipping point. Um, he's made, he made a huge contribution in translating and paraphrasing and metricizing the Psalms in a way that were singable for his English uh, kind of working class congregations. Um, but he also wrote a, such a significant body of original hymns yes. um, because he was such a gifted biblical scholar and poet. Um, and so he opened the door for congregational singing of what was then known as human composure, um, mm-hmm. original poetry, because he felt um, and he actually argued quite boldly that the singing of psalms um, was by itself not sufficient um, for Christian worship because the worshipers needed to respond in some way in a New Testament uh, context and preferably in their own words. So the psalm and hymn controversy aside, let's simply say that Anne Steele comes in in the post-Watts generation. Okay. She is a serious student of Watts's circa 700 texts um, and just a very, um, well, let me give this to you in a little more orderly fashion. Um, She was born the daughter of William Steele III, who was um, a lay preacher, a wealthy businessman, uh, successful business interests in timber, uh, because at the height of the British Royal Navy, um, the Navy was the biggest client for timber, and then reinvested in his wealth in farming. But in the uh, Broughton Church, um, did I pronounce that correctly? So the Steele Estate in Broughton um, lists him as their minister, and it was just a literate home. It was a home imbued with a passion for ministry. So... Um, Steele herself has a life story that could have been a movie because of just the drama of loss and difficulty and um, unbelievable Mm -hmm. challenges that she faced. 
uh, beginning with the loss of her mother when she was three years old. Um, her father, William Steele, did remarry, uh, and Anne's stepmother kept a detailed journal for 17 years between on and off between 1730 and 1760 um, as the matron of this estate. And we learn a great deal about congregational life from that period, but also about just their family life. So part of this was the the business journal of the farming, describing the harvesting of wheat and you know all the different um, schedules that were involved there. Um, Anne herself um, then had a close stepsister um, and also and other siblings, and she herself experienced the tragic um, tragic loss of her fiance on the day before they were to be married. Um, now I wondered, Esther. I, I was wanted to confirm with you, and I knew you'd be able to to tell us that's not uh, that's not legend. I mean, it, that really happened. No. Yeah. He was, yes, he was bathing in the river Avon oh, and um, okay. lost his life. Um, she herself had also experienced a um, serious fall from a horse, from uh, a riding accident at the age of 19, and then losing her fiance at 21. Um, we can only imagine the mm -hmm. cumulative loss and grieving process that, uh, that she endured. Um, in spite of those two um, towering losses um, and even the ongoing chronic pain that she faced for the rest of her life, um, which she describes in detail in, in some letters and it, um, some of her descriptions seem to indicate malaria, that that was an ongoing battle of hers. Um, in spite of those things, Steele was an important member of the church community in um, teaching the scripture uh, to, to children and a member of the family, the extended family. Um, so despite their, you know, their wealth and, and comfortable situation, they experienced real tragedy. And when, um, when her close sister passed, Steele took on the uh, raising and the education of her niece, um, Polly. And so um, it, any of us who have done um, homeschool or even, you know, NTI or, or Zoom school understand the challenges of that. But Anne Steele was doing this with significant chronic pain issues herself. Wow. And it did not seem to um, uh, stop her caregiving and her instructing. So um, I'm just going to finish this biography because to me, it's so touching hmm. that um, her niece uh, ultimately followed her footsteps as a poet, a devotional uh, poet, and um, and kind of gathered a, a group of young women that she mentored, um, and they um, shared, you know, it was a writing group, um, and her nephews also, she invested in, in her nephews as they were growing up and going to boarding school, and then they she was just a beloved aunt in the family, although she uh, stayed at home and in, for about six years of her life was quite restricted to her room or restricted to bed. Uh, but um, her nieces and nephews loved visiting her, loved being around her. And um, she, uh, her, her niece wrote the epithet, the poem, 
that ended up being on Anne Steele's tombstone. Um, so that's a, a picture of not only uh, parish life or congregational life in Britain at the time, but of, of one life well lived who managed to touch so many others. And um, all of that um, is quite aside from her uh, hymn writing gained uh, international notice fairly early on. Her collection, A Bruised Reed, of course, based on the scripture verse, A Bruised Reed, He Will Not Break. Um, and she, I think, really clung to that beautiful promise from God's word. Um, uh, she also published then a collection um, under the pseudonym Theodosia, uh, because pseudonyms for uh, were uh, a fashion for female writers early on in the, in the early modern period. And <clears throat> a fine biography by another British particular Baptist is J.R. Broom's A Bruised Read, The Life and Times of Anne Steele. So uh, we get a lot of the close detail of the texture of her life from Broom's biography. Um, we can do historiography if you're if you want, because Steele in, in the 20th century, you know, in, in the recent decades, shows up at a lot of interesting parties, shall we say, um, <laughs> for such a recluse, right? Um, she was rediscovered during the RUF Reform University Fellowship. Yes. Uh, beginning of the retuning retuned hymns movement um thanks to the passionate research interests of kevin twitt um hymn scholar and ruf you know student minister and yes. he he succeeded in sort of turning on a, a younger generation of college students to um this very reserved devout wonderful um particular baptist uh, well nice of a presbyterian to allow a baptist into the rediscovery of rich hymns. Exactly. And that's, that's where right. I'm, I'm headed with this because my first um, Ann Steele gig yes. <laughs> was um, the Kevin Twitt Worship Conference at Belmont University in, I think, 2002. Uh, so right at the height of, the, of that movement. And he was saying with a twinkle in his eye, you know, here's, here's Esther uh, Kirkshank from um, Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. And... Um, you know, they don't have an Ann Steele hymn in their Baptist hymnal at this point. And he was exactly right, because the 1975 Southern Baptist, uh, the Baptist hymnal does include uh, Father of Mercies, which was one of her most beloved hymns. But then the 91 and the 2008 hymnals do not contain any Ann Steele. Well, I How want to come back to that, Esther, and I want to maybe think out loud with you, and maybe you have a concrete reason as to why she would be neglected in in our Baptist hymnals in our in our Baptist churches, uh, but I want to go back and I wonder in in your reading of the the biography by Brums or Brooms uh, Broom, Broom uh, I'm I'm always curious what was her suffering and part of those tragedies is that what gave kind of birth to her her writing and her poetry, or is there a direct correlation there, or can we surmise one? I believe we can. Okay. In fact, um, just to give an overview of her, um, the themes in her hymnody, um, we uh, have the whole spectrum from richly theological um, and propositional hymns, if you will, mm -hmm. um, beautiful hymn on the word of God, 
um, hymns on creation. Uh, she loved writing just religious devotional poetry as well on the beauties of, of nature and so on. Uh, but especially the more personal side of the spectrum, she can be called the um, a real pioneer of hymns of spiritual autobiography. And by that, I'm not simply meaning uh, conversion narrative. So not only the, um, the turning point, but um, the journey itself. And for Steele, very often um, the times of spiritual dryness and um, the low points of the journey and then um, how that, how her sights have been raised to reaffirm God's promises again. So uh, she certainly doesn't remain mired in the muck, so to speak, but she um, is very honest. And I think that is the compelling aspect of her, even to, to postmodern, you know, st the students and, and young adults, um, just the gut-wrenching honesty um, within the disciplined uh, poetic craft and poetic style that she um, developed. Sounds a lot like the Psalms. I mean, Very this heart-wrenching yeah. honesty, but yeah. I, I don't want to misquote you, but not staying in the mire. Uh, right. I will yet again right. praise him. Right. Yes. And of course, Watts was rooted in the Psalms um, and he wrote about 350 Psalm paraphrases meaning he rethought and recast multiple psalms from different angles. That's how he got to so many. But um, Steele would still be in a Baptist context where the psalms were sung as well as hymns. And where it was that sweet spot where there was a balance, if you will. Mm -hmm. and, um, and when I'm talking about the honesty, where is my God? Does he retire? You know, and then by the end of that hymn, she's, um, she's praising him again, mm. but, um, it's not, a um, it's not an atheistic or even right. a, uh, you know, it's not a cynical, where is my God, but it's my God, right? Mm. It's, mm -hmm. you know, um, we have a closeness and he's missing or he feels absent right now. And I'm going to express that in my, in my texts. So um love that even the hymn that you um quoted at the beginning of the session there are many scripture paraphrase hymns uh 18th century writers would be skilled in crafting a hymn from a new testament narrative or from an epistle even and so here um she, the savior calls let every ear she's mm -hmm. writing a um an invitation hymn, uh, an invitation to conversion, and um, drawing that from, as you say, from John seven thirty seven, and um, so even though she was not preaching sermons herself, like many of the eighteenth century writers who were pastor ministers writing a hymn uh, to accompany a specific sermon, but um, she was in a ministerial home, and her father discipled her. And um, the, the thoroughness of his biblical instruction is so evident, um, as well as just her uh, strong, you know, hunger for um, 
God's word, you know, from childhood up and her, her, just her strong intellect in crafting that in, into um, her poetry, her magnum opus, if you want to think of this as an epic poem is called Redeeming Love. Um, and it's in 33 stanzas, it's sort of a, a Handel's Messiah, if you will, just a deep, wow. deep meditation on um, uh, the crucifixion and the implications of it. Um, there are moments that sound very much like um, a stanza of Watts here and there, um, but it's it's uh, an extended meditation. And so several uh, if hymn book hymns have been carved from it. A cento um, is what uh, they would be called. And those would be, you know, maybe just six or five stanzas taken from redeeming love but um she did as i said um her her three volumes um her three volume collection is what um became a gold mine for even american hymn books uh in the 18th century so she never made it here herself but her hymns did um shortly after uh, the revolution shortly after we became a nation um, well, it seems like they they need to make their way still more back. into into our churches mm -hmm, and into mm -hmm. particularly into our Baptist circles, but evangelicalism generally. Mm -hmm. uh, and I want to ask you in a moment why it might be that 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 she's not, because if I if my understanding is right, Esther, for about a hundred years after her death, her her hymns were very much a part of British and and American uh, hymns. And then they kind of fell away. And I wonder, do you have an idea as to, to why Anne Steele isn't as recognized? Let's remind our listeners. I mean, she was a contemporary of Isaac Watts. I mean, he was younger, I mean, mm -hmm. by a fair bit, but he went into the mid-18th centuries. Uh, Charles Wesley, I mean, was another contemporary. John Newton, William Cooper. So people that are, in a lot of ways, if you know anything about uh, you know hymns, those are household names. I'm wondering why Ann Steele isn't right there with them. Any, any thoughts? Um, well, being particular Baptist, okay, she wasn't uh, in the mid-flow of the evangelical revival. Right. Um, right. Although it was Methodist hymn books that picked up uh, several of her hymns in uh, early Methodist hymn books published in the U.S., so there was definitely uh, a fluidity, uh, kind of a delightful inter interaction um, between those movements. And um, those Methodists must not have known she her, was a Calvinistic Baptist. Her, <laughs> I wouldn't say that the boundaries were entirely water watertight. So I... Um, and I think that her father and, and the community, the Broughton Church, the uh, those counties were certainly um, receptive with with respect um, to renewal and to enlivenment um, the you know the rising revivalism. Um, she certainly was aggressive in pressing on to know the Lord and had a desire to uh, to see his kingdom grow and to see her um, mentees, you know, grow in in spiritual life and renewal. Um, 
beyond that, uh, again, then shortly after her, as the movement grew so huge, um, the Wesley, Charles Wesley was producing thousands and that movement had its own hymnody and they were known as the singing Methodists and they loved their hymns. And they, um, that doesn't mean that they threw out everything else, but they sort of came with their own repertory, didn't they? And they did. Yes. And so, um, she is, begins to be represented by just more of a small trickle. Um, usually father of mercies in thy word and father, what, what era of earthly bliss, which is so interesting that both of her two really well-beloved hymns are addressed to, to God as father. Um, she just had a very special relationship with him. And, mm -hmm. um, um, I can just speak about her use, her poetic skill, her use of poetic devices is very close to that of, of Watts. Um, well, I did want to ask you, Esther, you could speak so well to not only we, we talked about her theology, the theology in her hymns, which is so commendable. And, and, uh, but, but then just from a technical, was she a good poet? Was she a good writer of, of hymns? Yes. Okay. Um, she, uh, writes without excess, but with, um, with skill and, um, she can command the poetic devices that she needs um, in order to create the impact. Um, both she and Isaac Watts interestingly addressed reason in their hymns. Uh, obviously they're living at the rise of the age of enlightenment and um, uh, neither of them uh, was dismissing reason, but was pointing to it as an insufficient um, in itself way to reach God. Um, she says in one hymn, quote, reasons weak directions leave the mind bewildered in a dubious road. Um, um, and uh, the apostle Paul would add, and uh, you know, knowledge puffs up and that kind of thing. Um, but here's a- Luther would be pleased with, with those comments here's on a reason. Very, yes. Here's a very Watts-like uh, Watts-like uh, stanza of hers entitled "There is a There is a God." It's like a bold and lovely apologetic sermon uh, on that opening statement. So I'll give you two stanzas. There is a God. All nature speaks through earth and air and seas and skies. See from the clouds His glory breaks when the first beams of morning rise. The rising sun, serenely bright, or the wide world's extended frame inscribes in characters of light his mighty maker's glorious name. Hmm. So it's a stunning description of, of a sunrise as, you know, God's handwriting, in a sense, inscribing his name. And um, that is typical, I think, of her ability to experience the beauties of nature and to hmm. translate them in evangelical terms into um, her poetry, into her hymns. And they did, mm. she did live in a beautiful rural uh, countryside um, setting. The family home was called Grandfather's and she um, was able to, to see that lovely part of England at every season of the year and to write poetry about it. 
Well, the well, heavens declare. It sounds uh, yes. like that's on her day-to-day pours forth speech. And here she's writing uh, yes. original hymns that echo now, the Psalms. Yes. Now to answer the other part of your question, and what I just read uh, to me sounds resonates very much uh, of Addison as well, um, who was kind of the ultimate serene enlightenment evangelical hymn writer, if you will. Um, but um, uh, every... Um, every part of nature expresses um, and is worthy of a God uh, in Addison's phrase. But some of, perhaps some of Steele's language is a bit um, on the flowery side when she's describing a bucolic English country scene in the language of fleecy flocks and feathered warblers and streams and rivulets. So either somebody would have to heavily retune that or they would just, it, it would fall on the cutting room floor, right? Of, yes. the hymnal, of the hymnal committee. So that might address your question. But to me, it's very endearing anyway. I, I Anyway, but uh, let's move to her um, deep meditation of the cross uh, from the, with some quotes from that redeeming love epic poem of hers. Um, yes. And the ability in the 18th century uh, for believers as a discipline of private prayer, the ability to not only meditate on the cross of Christ, but to call to mind vividly the entire scene of, of his dying in all of its gravity, pain, and grief. Uh, a visualization in prayer, if you will, is present in not only Watts, but in um, this couplet from Steele, uh, and she uses the poetic device of parenthesis to inject her own uh, intense feelings about the scene. But when his painful sufferings rise, delightful, dreadful scene, she puts in parentheses. And of course, that's a powerful oxymoron as well, or oxymoron with a delightful and dreadful. Um, mm. That's just very gripping. And then even um, later in that same hymn, uh, tis here, when she's speaking of the sacred word, when she's speaking of God's word, tis here in the scripture, I view with pleasing pain how Jesus left the sky, parentheses, almighty love, surprising scene for man, lost man to die. Mm. So you really kind of need to see it in print as well, uh, but it's um, fraught with, the skill of, of 18th century poetic uh, writing and, and the devices. Um, but for the impact of um, meditating on the cross and on the crucifixion. Esther, over the course of this conversation, would it be fair to say that Watts might be her biggest influence? You've made a lot of connections between Watts or just saying, not that she was copying him at all, but but they're, they're maybe the most similar, uh, or she might be most similar to Watts. I don't want to miss. I would be willing to say that, yes. And okay. um, he was such a towering figure that that, that sort of stands to reason. And um, it's exciting to see how the younger generation carried uh, forward his legacy in quite individual ways. Her, uh, her close contemporary was actually Philip Doddridge, and we think of simply, oh, happy day, that fixed my choice. But Doddridge, besides being a, a Christian school and seminary administrator um, and training, uh, ultimately training 200 young men for the gospel ministry, um, he produced several hundred 
uh, hymns and scripture paraphrases as well um, that, and has his own individual style. So, um, mm. yes. Well, the, the influences are, are, are probably many, but, but maybe Watts and, and, and a couple others. Uh, she's just so similar to, and what great company to be in. Mm -hmm. So uh, before we close here, and we want to go out with maybe just a couple takeaways, like Anne, Anne Steele for today. How can Anne Steele uh, help the evangelical church most today? Obviously, with her devotion, her theologically driven hymns. Uh, but what, what would you say might be a, a really good takeaway for from Anne Steele for today? Um, it, it's possible that uh, she could have been a kind of a poster child for the whole COVID scene as we had an increased number of believers just suffering and suffering at home um, in, in isolation. I think she knew a few things about isolation and yet uh, she had a large heart and a vision, you know, for not only Christ, but for the community. And it, it, she did not become um, cut off from um, just the flow of what it means to be a believer in, in the body of Christ. Um, I would just say that for... Um, biblical theology, especially meditations on the, the cross. And then also, um, I didn't even mention her hymns on um, the fragileness and brevity of life. And that would be in some of her evening prayers and um, uh, New Year's prayers and hymns, so on. Um, I'm going to just add the note of gratitude as well for Anne Steele. Um, this is a quote from him, 21, God, my creator and benefactor, my maker and my king, to thee my all I owe. The sovereign bounty is the spring from whence my blessings flow. Thou ever good and kind, a thousand reasons move, a thousand obligations bind my heart to grateful love. Beads Podcast is in partnership with H&E Publishing of a formed and Canadian publishing house seeking to spread the steadfast love and faithfulness of Christ through the publication of church history, biblical spirituality, Christian living, and theology. Join us next time as we seek to see what God has done in the history of his people.